Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. I come to you this morning with sincerely um, a, a, a really trembling sort of holy hesitation. I've got to watch the time carefully. Because I have more to say in a single sitting than I've ever said in a sitting. I know some of you are going, oh my goodness. All right. <clears throat> but I, I come today with a heaviness of heart. And I come today with a sensitivity because of the concern that today's teaching will have more occasions online in a digital forum to be excerpted and reframed outside of the context of what is intended than ever. There's no more sensitive subject we're facing in culture, probably in our generation, than the one I'll deal with today when we ultimately land there. But today, I have, matter of fact, I have my Mercy t-shirt on again. I'm probably going to wear it every day. This is a house of mercy. For all of us who have spent now headed towards 20 years together, next July, Brenda and I will have been here worshiping with you for 20 years. And as we head towards that, this is not your first run around the track at Mercy. You've heard Mercy probably next to teaching on worship. You've heard teaching on Mercy um, um, probably above all else. And let me go ahead and get your cameras ready because I think you'll want these. By the way, last, last week, Pastor Matt's sermon, if you have not seen it or listened to it, oh my goodness. You need to see it. You need to listen to it. Um, just so powerfully presented. And one of the, the points of truth, I don't know if I have this. Uh, Gabe, this would be the fourth one. I'm skipping a fifth one. I'm speak, skipping it. But here's the premise um, that we've been discussing for quite some time. Judgment and wrath cannot exist where mercy rules. But judgment and wrath will rule where mercy is withdrawn. I want to say it again. That's an important biblical theological statement that has to do with the wrath we experience subjectively and momentarily now and the potential wrath for eternity at the end of the age. We've got a lot of places to go this morning. Judge, judgment, that's a typo there, forgive me, that should say judgment. Judgment and wrath cannot exist where mercy rules. Judgment and wrath will rule where mercy is withdrawn. And that is so biblically wrapped up in, in, in just in theologically. The epicenter scripture, James chapter 2, verse 13 for me, the 12 verses that precede it are, is one of the most practical expressions of the concept of judgment and condemnation. In a court today, a justice, a court of justice, judicial system today, as it was in the ancient days, the court has two primary purposes. They assess the information or the indictment or whatever. They assess it, and then based upon the court's assessment, they assign an outcome. Now, in the first 12 verses of the book of, of James, chapter 2, James is rebuking the local church because it says, you have rich people come in, and you give them a seat, and you have the poor come in, and you say, stand over there. But he says, you don't realize that you're dealing with sons and daughters of royalty and you're assigning them as a place, a station. Did you know that when we are called to exercise judgment, we are called to assess, but never to assign? That's an important. God has the ability to assign. We assess. We can, and that is such an important thing. I wish I had lots of time. You're going to hear five sermons this morning, okay? So just get ready for it. Now, <clears throat> look at the person next to you and say, buckle up, all right? Now, to that end, when you get to verse 13, James wraps a bow on it when he says, for judgment will be merciless. That's the only place that the word mercy appears in grammatical negative polarization, in other words, without mercy, merciless to the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I'm going I'm to deal with some complexities in scriptures and even understanding why at the end of the age there's two seats of judgment. I believe there's, and I'll get to that in a minute, but this will bring, this right here frames that. 
where mercy is withdrawn, judgment will be merciless and ruthless. And you see it glaring uh, at the end of the age. But let me give you these little working things. Mercy is the force of God's love refusing to join us in any identity or opinion of me above his opinion of me. Would you look at that? Matter of fact, can we read it together? Forgive me for not being pedantic, but let's read it. Mercy, the force of God's love refusing to join us in any identity or opinion of me above his opinion of me. That's mercy at work. There's been as much teaching on mercy around here in 20 years as any single topic because it's critical that we understand, listen to me, beloved, that mercy nor grace are some divine expression of God's cosmic niceness that you spread over sin to make it smell better. That's not what, that's not what mercy and grace. We use those words in culture. Oh, so-and-so is gracious. Oh, so-and-so, they were merciful. And we've, we've co-opted the term and twisted it into a subtle expression that really sucks all of the power right out of it from God's word. But we're recapturing those. Let's keep going. Mercy is God's initiative to make, to make grace available to me. Mercy was the initiative through the cross to make sure that grace would be available. How is that? Because mercy refused to join me in my opinion of me or my last act of sin as the consummate identity of me. Mercy stands off and says, no, I'm not going to join you in that. And there's no greater statement than the cross. The cross is God's statement of mercy that keeps the door open for grace. That, that, that's huge. That's a huge statement. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, when it says, Now boldly approach the throne of grace, how? Well, you receive what? you got to pass through mercy and then grace. Why? Because grace empowers my life. Mercy says, I refuse to empower you to simply advance the power of sin. So as we approach this throne of empowerment and grace, we, we look at and God says, step up and receive power. Well, how do I get more of that? Well, if I gave you grace without mercy, watch, it would empower certain points of brokenness in your life. But I need you to pass by mercy. It's why, Pastor Mark, and here's just something that, that flew into my brain. For 40 years, I have refused to accept the, the primary denominating expression or mantra of Alcoholics Anonymous. Hi, my name is Tom. I am an alcoholic. No, alcoholism is a sin. It is not who I am. It's what I've done. And the ultimate work of condemnation, I'm going to come back to that, is rooting my identity in my past and failure and sin. It is a work, it roots my identity in the works of my flesh, my failing, my past, and my sin. Whereas conviction roots my identity in the future. See, condemnation roots my identity in what I've done. Conviction of the Holy Spirit roots my identity in what I have yet to be. That's solid Bible, John 16, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, I hold out a hope, and the Holy Spirit, as that agent of conviction, says, I'm holding out for hope. Your identity is not in the flesh and what you've done and where you've failed. Your identity is rooted in who you are as a son of God and what you're yet to be and what I'm calling you forward to. Anybody get that? So I passionately refuse any voice that says, this is who I am until who I am is centered in the I am. <clears throat> Third definition of mercy. Mercy is God refusing to join me in my destruction of me. I don't know if the whole system went down. Everything's gone blank. So I'm getting a yellow light. So we're just going to have to do this old school. Mercy is God refusing to join me in my destruction of me. There's the, uh, each of these are whole sermons, okay? There we go. Now, <clears throat> a quick summary of worship. In the Old Testament, in the temple, was the Holy of Holies. Now, I've got to find some way of perhaps illustrating this. In the Holy of Holies, Gabe, I, I didn't call you, I didn't remind you to, to bring up the picture of the 
Ark of the Covenant Mercy Seat. It's somewhere on that computer, son, if you might be able to find it, but I just didn't think of it, and that's my bad. But I'm going to see if I can frame this somehow. I wish this seat was, like, way taller than the other. In the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, according to the book of Exodus that is described, it says the Holy of Holies was that innermost place where God would come once a year, and what everyone understood... If you read the words of Isaiah, you hear the words of Abraham, you hear the declaration of Gideon, if you are ever exposed to that unadulterated presence of God. See, God said, I came into the Holy of Holies and I'm enthroned. And I I wish the throne was up here. He says, I'm enthroned above the mercy seat. This is the mercy seat. God said, I don't sit on the mercy seat. I'm enthroned above the mercy seat. At the four corners of the mercy seat, this is a very poor representation, were these images of the seraphim, these horrific, horrific angelic beings that show up first in the book of Genesis. We see them in Isaiah. We see them in Revelation 4 and 5. They're the guys crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In Revelation, Isaiah says, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. These beings, it said, do not cease to say until we learn of a time they actually stop saying that when the Lamb makes entry into the heavenlies. Powerful stuff. I know this is a lot, but it's recorded. It's online. That's the good news of current technology. You can listen to it ten times. I have to say all of this this morning to get where I'm going. What's fascinating is that in Old Testament, when God would be enthroned once a year, should the high priest enter and he was not purified, wearing the perfect, the, 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 the proper clothing, he would come in and sprinkle the seat with the blood of a lamb, with the mercy seat, the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and based upon that, then he could make entry and would not be destroyed by holy. You see, here's the problem. Without blood on the mercy seat, holy kills me. Everybody got that? The throne of God kills me. But what we learn about according to Scripture. Now, I'm about to present you with more Scripture in a single sermon, New Hope, than I've presented to you in 20 years. They're going to go fast. They'll be recorded. That's fine. You can see them again. Listen to this thread. Mark 16, 19. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, this is the ascension at the, end of the, at the end of this gospel, he was received up into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down. Look at the person next to you and say, I wonder where he sat. Let's keep going. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm, this is mid-text. He's talking about the death, the resurrection, the victory. Our, our provision, which he brought about in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, where? In the heavenly places. Question is, where did he sit down? Ephesians 2, 6, and he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. Next question, where is our seat? Where do we sit on? Are there folding chairs in heaven? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, God's nature. He's speaking of Jesus. And upholds all things by the word of his power when he made purification for sins. That's the sprinkling. That's Old Testament language. Note that he's writing this book to who? At the bottom in the white banner. Who is he writing it to? Hebrews, Jewish people who were Old Testament worshipers, this entire book builds the bridge between all of the Old Testament imagery and worship unto a New Testament and a New Covenant realization in our lives, okay? Uh, He said, which he had made for purification of our sin, that's language of the sprinkling of the mercy seat, when he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Well, how did he do that? Hebrews 8. This is not like the covenant which I, which I made with their fathers, God speaking here, on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For there they did not continue in my covenant. And I just recorded the wrong verse, I'm pretty sure. Hebrews 9. Let's go. Hebrews 9, 5. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat but of these things we can't speak in detail. He's speaking of the Old Testament, the Hebrew writer is, and he's describing the things that took place in the Holy of Holies being a picture of a heavenly realization. Okay? He's saying, 
in this one on the earth, there was a mercy seat, seraphim at the corner, and above the mercy seat, God was enthroned. Well, when you fast forward, <clears throat> when you fast forward the, well, uh, I love this, Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. I love that. I love that use of, a, of two similar terms there. Jesus said, I went the cross to shame shame. You understand that when you're invited, several months ago, Pastor Don Metcalf spoke to us from 2 Samuel 9, the story of King David and the grandson of a deposed and, and assassinated King Saul that came before him. And he says this thing, he says, Is, are there any relatives left that I may show kindness? That's the Hebrew word for mercy. So mercy to him. I love this. Pastor Matt and I were talking about it yesterday. I should have saved those notes from the text message, son. But, the, um, but uh, that he, he says that, um, that he, somebody I may show mercy to, and sure enough, he finds him, and he invites him to be at the king's table. Mephibosheth is humiliated, and both of his legs are, are lame. We don't know the cause of it, but he can't walk. And so he is a disgraced, he's the grandson of a disgraced king, literally hiding for fear of retribution, because in those days, when one king took over from another, they killed any really living relative for fear that the living relative may lay claim to the throne and seek to push the existing king out of it. But here's what I like. David, the king, says, I want you to come to my table, and he has him come to the table, and Mephibosheth was wondering why. But he said, not only will you eat here today, but you'll eat as regularly as you want. And whatever was lost, I'm going to give you back all of your grandfather's property. And I'm going to give you men to farm it. But while I give you men to farm it who will provide food for your table, I want you to know that most of the time that will never be necessary. Because as often as we have dinner, I want you seated right here with me. And the point of that wonderful message Pastor Don, Don shared is this. There's always a seat there's always a seat at the table for, excuse me, there's a seat at the table of mercy for my shame. There'll always be a seat for my shame at the table of mercy. David the king says, I want you to come to the ta my table as often. But see, there would come the king of kings later who exercised an extension of mercy. And he said, I don't want you to just come have a seat at my table. I want you to boldly approach my very throne room anytime you want because you can come by way of mercy. Blood that paid the price of mercy. Mercy that gives you access to more grace to push back the forces of hell in your life. Woo, my goodness. <clears throat> okay. I need to move without explanation. I didn't succeed in finding the date. There are two dates I preached this, 2017, and then I touched on it again in 19. I'm going to find the right one. So if any of you email me, Tom at New Hope Online, I'll send you all these notes. Um, and I will send you the link, hopefully, to the, where this was taught. But on conviction versus condemnation, I don't have time to reference all the scripture. You just need to listen to these statements, please. Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit, John 16. Condemnation is the result of flesh and sin. Condem condemnation is embracing an identity based on the result of what I've done in the past. Conviction points to that what is yet to be seen and yet to be realized in my future. Condemnation is having an identity rooted in failure and sin I've done. Conviction is having an identity rooted in unrealized possibilities of transformation by and through the Holy Spirit. That's a mouthful, a mouthful of theology that needs to un be unpacked. Now, I've rushed to this point. <clears throat> Let me say this. I need to, well... The question hit me, and, and I'm going to depart from that for just a moment. <laughs> that Revelation chapter 4, I never got there, and 5, John the Revelator in Revelation 5, watch this, he looks and he sees the throne. He sees the scroll of the will of God and the possibilities. No one to open it. He begins to weep. Watch what happens here. And an elder said, John, why are you weeping? Take another look. And he says, I look, and I saw one standing. Watch. Between the seraphim and the throne. And he took the scroll from his hand. Between. 
See, Hebrews and Ephesians say that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Well, Hebrews tells us that the Holy of Holies is a picture of that in the heavenlies. So if the picture of that in the heavenlies, or the picture of the Holy of Holies, is a picture of that in the heavenlies, then there we look at it and we say, wow, yeah, we see the seraphim swirling around the throne. And there above the seraphim, sure enough, is God enthroned. But the intimation of Scripture is this, that there's been a seat held open in the heavenlies reserved for one. One that the Son of God could not sit in until he took on flesh, passed through this earth, and shed the blood necessary to be sprinkled here, as the Hebrew says, once and for all. No more sprinkling takes place. That sprinkling took place on the cross. And at that moment, the Father looks at the Son as he ascends to the heavenly, and he says, come take your seat. And there the Son is seated on the mercy seat between the seraphim and the throne of God. Why is that important? Because an empty mercy seat leaves a throne as a throne of holy that only kills sin. But with an empty with a mercy seat that's occupied, we come by way of the blood of the lamb and suddenly a throne of holy that would only kill me is transformed into a throne of grace that animates my life, saves my soul, redeems my brokenness, heals my past, transforms my future and begins to make me all that God has declare. That's a good place to thank Jesus for that. Hallelujah. Today we're facing like never before. And I'm nervous about this. Not because it's my first rodeo on the subject. I'll explain that in the past. But like never before, is culture insisting on informing the church of what we will preach as the primary message of the gospel. You need to love people. And unfortunately, that lands squarely on the back of one single issue. And that is a very fluid social construct of gender identity. The, when I say the whole uh, expression of LGBTQIA+, Nothing you will hear out of my mouth is coy, cocky, arrogant. As a matter of fact, I'm seated on purpose. I need the inflection of my voice to be just right. There'll be places that you may be tempted to clap, but today in praise, but I can assure you that that clapping will be misunderstood by those watching because they won't hear clapping as an expression of the overcoming victory of the human soul. They will hear it as a polarized indictment against who they perceive themselves to be shrouded in the rejection we're projecting towards them. This past week, on a forum with about 4,000 pastors, there were several pastors, and when we began to discuss this topic, that asserted, you guys, you've got to stop condemning gay people. Three years ago, when I stepped in to be student pastor for eight months to a year or so, I handed out cards and I said, asktom.com, ask the pastor, what questions do you want answered? Number one question from the voices of today's generation. And it was deeply sincere. Pastor, why does the church hate gay people? Pastor, why does the church condemn gay people? Now, the reason I'm so passionate about this, as has been noted already, um, we don't, I don't speak to the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, what do I have to do with the world? My word is to the church. You see, I, I, I've listened to pastors all of my life that want to preach at the world, and I've always been caught, just amazed by the fact that they find some measure of joy in telling us that fish are wet. They live in water, guys. And the world out there, but yeah, the world out there is that, but... What we need to preach to is the invasion of a world consciousness into the culture of the church that will begin to absolutely mitigate the message of redemption and hope for the world. That is what I'm addressing this morning. My passion is not about the issue, and here comes something that can be excerpted, about having the opportunity to take Bible in hand, beat up gay people, 
and the joy of declaring, we sure hope you get to go to hell with gasoline underwear on. I'm going to pause right there. He said, I cannot believe you said that out loud. I've just represented much of the preaching I've heard. This platform has been used for everything from social to political representation when we must exercise the most extreme discipline in stepping up here and say, I speak by the Spirit and for God. I do not speak from a social, a platform of social preference because I was born in the southeastern United States or raised in a conservative political environment. I don't get to speak uh, from some political platform of acknowledging the, the whole inter- concerns of intersection and what's happening. I don't, I, don't, I don't get that. I don't want that. Stop condemning gay people. I'm going to read to you. Nobody likes that. Hang on. Today, the voice of culture provides... I, I did this because I want my words to be exact, and they've been prayed over saturated in tears. Today, the voice of culture provides the recurring assertion and accusation that those in the church of Jesus Christ who hold a spiritual, hold a spiritual posture that is loveless, hostile, combative, and condemning towards people who have embraced, embraced an identity of LGBTQIA. That is an unfortunate mischaracterization and ironically enough, in its own right, condemning. Nonetheless, in response... Within the context of the larger Christian faith community, we spirit-filled Pentecostals are somewhat unique. We are a Holy Spirit-possessed and empowered people of transformation who have been and are being transformed. The voice of culture, the voice of culture states there is no transformation necessary for transgender or homosexual people. That gender is a social construct of fluid design. They are assigning an identity in the flesh based on the work and determination of flesh, according to Scripture. Culture is stating we are a loveless people if we suggest transformation as a possibility, much less the singular objective of the Holy Spirit occupation. You hear me preach on 2 Corinthians 3 all the time. Some that we are holding out for the image of God stamped on every person. Did you know that language is used? That we are being transformed into the image of God from glory to glory. Glory is what holy does. Would you say that with me? Glory is what holy does. Glory is the force of God's opinion taking up residence in my life and shining through me at every conceivable level. And what happens is as we stand in front of the mirror we begin to see that image, the one stamped on the soul of every human being at creation, the image of God stamped on every human heart waiting to be redeemed and brought out in the presence of glory. Because as I come to holy and glory and the force of holy, which is glory, overshadows me, I stand in front of the mirror and I don't begin seeing the best version of me, I begin seeing him. I'm made in his image. Turn to the person next to you and say this and say, I see him in you. Tell him that. (laughs) There are many of those who lovingly and painstakingly have pursued the example of Christ in being touched by the feelings of the infirmities of these precious people. These precious people have been deceived into accepting an assigned identity beyond the scope of God's created intentions and wholeness of mankind. Taking the road less travel of, quote, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, of knowing no man by the flesh, but by the spirit, we indeed come, will indeed come with accusations. A precious gay person will indeed try to convince me who they are according to the flesh, but I will hold out for who they are according to the Spirit. Conviction versus condemnation. Suffice it to say, condemnation finds its root and identity in sin, the past, works of the flesh, and failure, and what I've done, ultimately dictating who I am. Conversely, conviction anchors my identity in faith, the future, 
a work of the Spirit dictating who and what I may be. Conviction is the possibility of transformation yet realized. Can I just pause there? There are so many sermons here. Would you say that out loud with me? Let me say it again. Conviction is holding is the possibility of transformation yet realized. Say that with me. Conviction is the possibility of transformation yet realized. In other words, it hasn't happened in me yet, but it's going to. Praise God. Now look at the person next to you and say, you have no idea just how wonderful you are. Go ahead and tell them that. (laughs) The point being, they, the transgender and homosexual person, are rooting their identity in sin, not me. They bring true condemnation to the table, not me. I want to say it again. Condemnation is the whispered voice of the adversary to base my identity in works of the flesh. Conviction is the voice of God calling me to root my identity in the possibilities of the spirit. If I choose to stand and say, Pastor Mark, when precious brothers and sisters come through the door, come here, Drew. I thought this morning as I was praying about this service, walk all the way up here, son, if you would. I thank God that every student that comes through the doors of Life Changers, Pastor Chip, at True Purpose, that you look them in the face and say, you just walked through the threshold of the house of mercy. You've just walked out of an identity that's been rooted in the weakness of your flesh and the vulnerability that addiction has brought to you. But you're about to experience mercy that brings life in the spirit transformation by the Spirit, an identity not born of the flesh, but by the Spirit. You have no idea who you are, the image of God in you, but you're about to find out. You're about to experience first the voice of mercy that says you leave the flesh outside the door. Only thing welcome in here is the voice of promise and the voice of the Spirit calling you to a life of transformation and all that God's declared you could be. Somebody needs to praise God for that right there. Real loud. Real loud. Thank you. Sit back down, Tom. Again, my working definition is the force of mercy is the force of God refusing to join me in any identity or opinion of me other than his. Judgment is also rooted in the implied and real understanding of both historical and contemporary judicial process. I know I said this early, allow me, indulge me reading it again. That has the power to assess and to assign. See James chapter one, verse two, chapter two, verses one through 13 is a spot on picture of assessing and assigning. When I engage a person who is pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ and who maintains they are transgender, transgender or gay, and then I lovingly share my disagreement or God's disagreement, in my opinion, they typically say, you're judging me, you're condemning me. And I remind them that I did not assess who they are and assign the identity based on flesh and call them gay or transgender. I explain to them that what I am doing is exercising the force of mercy to refuse to join them in accepting an assignment, an identity, and source of worth that will separate them from God's wholeness now and perhaps from him altogether for eternity. The weight of that possibility is absolutely crushing for me. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So to those who would continue the accusatory barrage of the church being hostile, combative and condemning, loveless and small-minded or whatever, fire away. We will stand right where we are and continue to battle for the souls of the broken in whatever expression that brokenness may show up at our door. Do you understand that the transgender discussion is not the only sin that comes to the door? I'm going to deal with that in a moment. Love and holy. Briefly and simply stated, the nature of God is no more greatly represented than by two self-denominating terms, Holy and love. God is holy. God is love. And since God can do nothing apart from who he is, 
Would you say that? God can't do anything other than who? Go ahead. God can't do anything other than who? God doesn't do anything apart from who he is. Humans do that all the time. I won't chase that. If you're married, you can say amen. um, uh, I have always believed the gospel then is an extension of the nature of God. Accordingly, the gospel is not only a message of love, but of holy as well. You cannot have one without the other. The increasing voice of, quote, all you need is love is a half gospel message. And the problem with a half gospel is it is not a gospel at all. It is a palliative gospel. The definition of palliative is to relieve the pain of a disease without dealing with the cause of the underlying condition. Beloved, we are not an impotent church who steps up to the prison bars of sin behind which precious souls are trapped and we do, it is more than reaching through the bars and rubbing their shoulder and saying it's going to be okay or coming and giving them something to eat between the bars and saying, I'm here just to try and make you a little more comfortable, but there's not a stinking thing I can do. I am powerless to open the door and let you out. Beloved, we have a gospel that does not only have the power to meet people at every point of hurt, pain, and concerning brokenness, but it also comes with a power to reach over and open that door and say, you can walk out if you want to. I cannot preach a gospel that is a half gospel and by implication, no gospel at all. A palliative gospel is it says what I just said. I have the ability to love you in your sin and make you more comfortable in your sin, but I am powerless to offer you anything that can deliver you from your sin. And again, that is not a monolithic message dealing with gay people. That's about anger, unforgiveness, addiction, brokenness of any sort or kind. The go-to indictment against the church of condemnation is typically directed at those of us who believe as equally for holy as we do for love. Love redeems my sin. Holy transforms my life. Love meets me where I am. Holy takes me where I need to go. Love meets me in my prison cell of sin, but holy opens the door and sets me free. Love drove Jesus to the cross, but Romans 1 says, holy brought him out of the tomb. There's still one aspect that conquers death, hell, and the grave. and It is the force of where love meets holy and an unleashed divine expression of God's power and purpose on the morning of the resurrection. I want to see, as Ephesians says, people resurrected to new life. And a love alone gospel won't do that. I cannot take away the hope that I cannot take away that hope. The gospel is given is the very hope for all mankind. I do not hold to a loveless gospel, but neither do I hold to a hopeless one either. Then I got a question about your tone and have you ever done this ministry? Let me sit down again. Welcome to Tom's living room. Because I'm a musician, I've never said this publicly. What's coming now is personal testimony that none of you know. Because I'm a musician and singer and songwriter as well as a pastor, and because our ministry has significant roots in the area of worship and arts, And because it seems within the gay community, many of those individuals are indeed creative, artistic, and talented, I have had the opportunity to engage with many, many of these precious people throughout the decades. Further, I have been engaged in this dialogue since the early 1980s. That's beyond the time most of you have been living. When my brother shared with me and our family that he had embraced his identity as gay and was part of a church in California whose pastor could, quote, help me understand my misinformed understanding of the gospel concerning gay people and faith. He contracted AIDS through same-sex sexual relationships. And as his health deteriorated, he moved back home from California so our family could care for him. I was at his bedside on February 18th, 1994, when he left this world. There's way, way, way more to this story, but I do very much believe that my brother Tim is with the Lord. 
I could list story after story after story after story. I really could. And as, as I'm sure many of you in the room can, but in all the years of engaging, meeting, loving, encouraging, teaching, sharing, redeeming truth with these precious people, I don't think you will find even one who would tell you their opinion of me or ministry through me is that I was anything less than genuinely loving in more than platitudinous religious words, but in spirit as in truth, and in truth as well. Just weeks ago, I stood right over here with a, a gay lesbian couple that had been attending for many weeks, and they came to tell me with smiles on their face. They stood holding hands and then with their arms around each other. And they said, Pastor Tom, we love being here. We just love the sense of love that we feel. And I said, I'm so glad. I'm really so glad. I'm so glad that you've found your way into a, a house of mercy and a house of worship. They looked back and they said, well, we love it so much and we really love you. And, and I said, thank you. And they said, we wanted to know if you would perform our wedding ceremony. At that point, I was standing and, you know, given distance. At that point, I stepped closer and I paused and I reached and touched both of them on the arms and I said, I need you to both look me in the eyes right now. I need you to watch my eyes, hear my voice, listen to the tone of my voice. What you will not hear coming from me is condemnation, but conviction. What you'll hear coming from me is not rejection, but hope. I take no joy in bringing any pain as I am aware that one of the significant points of human identity is our self-perception. And I realize that the words that are about to come out of my mouth will be disruptive. But I need to tell you, I can't perform that ceremony or solemnize that in the presence of God, which the word of God does not enjoin as an expression of God's wholeness to humanity. And I just don't believe that God's word says that. I could be wrong at the end. I don't think I am. But I can't do that. I can't do that because, see, you came to this place because you felt genuine love, and it's real. And I pray that you feel that in my voice right now. You came to this place and you've enjoyed it because you've sensed the presence of God hesitatingly and humbly offered as we gather together in worship, and I pray nothing is changing right now. But you see, the very fabric of that which draws you here, if I agreed to do this, it wouldn't be the place that would draw you here. Because God is here because we insist on one thing, the word of truth and the spirit of truth rising above all else. And I can't do anything other than tell you what I'm telling you based on that conviction, or I would not be the person that you have perceived me to be in preaching that. I said, Please don't recoil. And they didn't. They actually said, well, we don't agree, but we understand. A couple of weeks later, I got a text message informing me. They said, we found a church. Actually, they came back. Take that back. There was a text message and they came back. They said, we want to let you know that we found a church in Knoxville that really supports what, we're, what we believe is the identity for our life. And I said, I want you to know I will not stop praying for you or loving you or praying that you find mercy in the fullest expression. They thanked me and hugged my neck. Mercy is tough ministry. Dan, come on up. I'm done. You see, it's not as long as you thought. You will make it to Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Worship team, you can come on up. Mercy is tough ministry. Shout amen, Pastor Mark. Amen. <laughs> Mercy is not the divine frosting of God's niceness you smell across a pile of sin. Mercy is looking into the eyes of people you love and painfully refusing to join them in something you believe is consumingly destructive because you are holding out for God's opinion of them above their own opinion. I feel that an embraced LGBTQIA identity is the consummate expression of deception and self-condemnation. And I believe the deception is the very first, I believe deception itself is the very first expression of evil listed in scripture. 
that have the power to separate, separate mankind from the promise and presence of God while they were in the presence of God. That's where I'm at today. This message is being forced into the church. If the Equality Act ever makes its way through the Senate, it will land on the doorsteps of the church, insisting that this is what we say. And if we don't, federal funding, tax exemption, all of that will go away. Can I just say this calmly? None of that is a threat to me whatsoever. Not whatsoever. See, people are going to watch this and hear the clapping. Can I say why we're clapping? Because it's more the worth of holding the door for mercy open (laughs) is worth more than anything else we do. So I will never be able to tone down my passionate intensity as I believe deception is still the adversary's number one tool and that Romans 1 indicates that while homosexuality is not the greatest sin, yet Paul, by way of the Holy Spirit, lists it as its most egregious example of departing from truth and refusing God's opinion on matters of human life and wholeness. I want to come back. Would you say with me? I'm so glad there are no folding chairs in heaven. One of the scripture that I made a bad reference on, I didn't have it up, it's in Hebrews, that it talks about Jesus being seated and that after he's been invited to take his seat, he invites us to take ours. But this week it hit me, there are no folding chairs in heaven. Where do we get the seat? One of the passages says, seated with him. You see, as we approach, did you know that's why, but for those of you that are students, I don't have time to unpack this, there's two judgments listed. There's the Bema judgment in 1 Corinthians mentioned, and there is then the great white throne, the great throne judgment. Well, see, in this articulation, the throne of the Father is back here. It's the great throne by any other estimation. The only other seat or throne, if you will, that's available in the heavenlies, this is just for the fun of it. Okay, let me ask you, what if? is the mercy seat. The throne that Jesus gets, the mercy seat. At that judgment, the the believing of God who have partaken of mercy, they get to come before this throne and where our works and things are judged, but we're not rejected. But here's the problem. When John tells us by Jesus' mouth at the end of the day, all judgment will be handed to him. When Jesus takes his seat to judge the unbelieving, on the great white throne. The problem is it leaves this one empty. You do not want to approach the throne of God with an empty mercy seat. That throne that which is one grace now becomes holy without grace because they've refused the seat of mercy in a logical conclusion. At the end of the age, you are forced to confront holy and judgment without mercy. Wrath and judgment can exist where mercy rules, but, mercy, but wrath and judgment will rule where mercy's not present. You don't want to face that seat. I got to tell you, I'm going to walk out. I'm going to end right here. You need to stay seated so I can see you and you can see me. Wednesday night, we're praying. Boy, some just fountains of things about mercy are just coming that are so amazing. Now, those of you here will have to turn and look a little bit. Every Wednesday night from 6 to 7, we come to pray. There's four things we pray about. We pray for every person whose picture is on the back hallway. We go and have a little red pen and we put our initials and date. If we just go down and God speaks to us. We pray for that home. In about six months, I can't wait to mail that picture to the household and see the dates and names and the hundreds of times that they've been prayed for, totally unaware. I think that's going to be cool. We pray, number two, for the needs. We pray over every doorway that as people pass through these doorways, they will have a sense of entering the presence of the Lord. And then we pray for the seats. And here's what goes on. Last week, I walked down. I blocked off this seat so I could. I walked down it, and I said, Father, you can keep playing. Don't quit. 
KFC. When, when mercy speaks, nothing else can. When mercy speaks, I know who I am. There is a place where grace abounds and mercy is found. And I will wait right here at your feet for mercy to speak. We pray, I pray, Father, with hands anointed with oil, as I touch these seats, this week people are going to walk in and they're going to sit in these seats with all manner of hurt, pain, brokenness, and disillusionment. But Father, as they come into this house of mercy, I pray as they take a seat, they would not have the realization that they're sitting in a 25-year-old seat manufactured and fabricated by cushion, cloth, plastic, and metal. But Father, I pray that every person as they walk into this place and they reach down to take a seat, that there would be something of a transcendent expression and transaction between two worlds where Father... Jesus, you would reach down and say, I want you to know I never extended for you an invitation for you to take a seat in that church, but I have extended an invitation for you to take a seat right next to me. And Father, may they have the sense that they're not seated in a building on a seat of cushion, but may they have the seat sense that they're seated in heavenly places right next to a redeeming Savior who just slid over and said, come, come sit right here. Come sit right here next to me on the mercy seat. Would you stand to your feet? Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.